Welcome to Smorgasbord, a Jcast Network podcast. In this episode, Jcast Network Executive Director Daron Resquet had the opportunity to sit down with Charles Bronfman and Jeffrey Solomon to discuss their latest book, The Art of Doing Good, Where Passion Meets Action. Charles Bronfman of the Seagram's corporate family was the founding owner of the Montreal Expos and is the chairman of the Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies. Among his many philanthropic achievements is the creation of Birthright Israel and Historica. His humanitarian work has resulted in his having been awarded six honorary doctorates from universities in three countries. Jeffrey Solomon, president of the Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies, has taught philanthropy at New York University and has served on numerous nonprofit boards, including the Council on Foundations. Solomon has been Chief Operating Officer of the United Jewish Appeal Federation in New York, and he is a founding trustee of the World's Faith Development Dialogue. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Daron Resquet. Today, I have the opportunity to sit with Charles Bronfman and Jeffrey Solomon, whose latest book, The Art of Doing Good, Where Passion Meets Action, has just been published. Charles Bronfman, a renowned philanthropist, and the founder of the Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies, and Jeffrey Solomon, a lifelong expert in philanthropy and a nonprofit leader, as well as the president of the Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies. Welcome. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to sit with you today. Good to be with you. Thanks, Daron. This is the second book you two have written together. Your first book, The Art of Giving, Where the Soul Meets a Business Plan, was published in 2009. Why did you decide to write The Art of Doing Good? Well, I'll lead off, and then Jeff, uh, I'm sure, will chime in. The art of giving had one criticism to it, uh, and that was that it was perhaps for people who already had foundations or had enough wherewithal to get into foundations, and uh, people would say to us, well, you know, that's fine for the wealthy, what about us? Uh, In this book, we chose 18 what we call social entrepreneurs told their stories, they're people who started from scratch. Some and most succeeded, some fell by the wayside. The question was why. I think the second reason is, and and it was a surprise to us, we had a good time writing the book. And um, we had the energy and the desire to do it again. So um, we said, what the hell, let's do it again. Charles, you, you sort of referenced it in your answer uh, in, in saying who, who that first book was for, but who do you feel that this book is for? Who should read it and why? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think Jeff will agree. We learned a lot of lessons as we went through this about courage, about determination, about uh, really being an entrepreneur and what it means. Uh, I guess in our own ways, we've been entrepreneurs, but to, to see... Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Middle America find something that really grabbed them and start to run with it. And the problem is once they start running, and can they stop running, and can they fall back and regroup and say, holy catfish, I've taken on something too big. I don't know about uh, you, Daron, but uh, certainly in my experience, the things I've had the most success with are the things that I took on thinking they'd be relatively simple, and then all of a sudden, you're in a morass. You fight your way through it. Mm-hmm. I also think the, the 
book will do well for for others who may not yet be social entrepreneurs, but are either wanting to be in the nonprofit space or are in the nonprofit space. Um, they may work for existing uh, organizations, um, but they could become entrepreneurs within those organizations and, and coming up with I ideas that will make things better um, and learning some of the lessons of others in so doing. You continually are using the word social entrepreneur. You use it now, you used it throughout the book. How would you define that? Can you give an example? You know, one of my favorite examples um, is that of, of Jay Feinberg, who used a personal tragedy. Uh, he was suffering from leukemia, and at the time, um, there were only about 10% of those in the Jewish community suffering um, could find a match. And um, and this is like a chapter out of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in The Stages of Death. He, he basically said, if I survive this, I'm going to devote my life to making sure others are not in the shape, the condition that I'm in, and not having enough matches. And here we are um, 15, 18 years later, and, uh, and he has accomplished that goal. The, the, the match likelihood is as great um, in his community, in the Jewish community, um, as uh, it is for others. That's despite the fact that because of the Holocaust, the number of Ashkenazic gene pool loss was, was huge. Interestingly, his story started as a almost personal entrepreneur thinking about his own needs, and, it, and because of the importance of the work, it became social, for the larger social community, uh, the larger good. I mean, it was a, it's a powerful story and, and, and a case. And, and I think the, the, one of the lessons we certainly learned in this process is that very often it is a personal drive, personal tragedy, a personal opportunity that drives it. But ultimately, what, what all 18 have in common is that moment when the idea grabs them. It's sort of the aha moment when they are no longer controlling the idea, the idea is controlling them. You, you mentioned the 18. It was interesting as I read through the book to see the 18 that you've chosen. And if I had looked at the book before I started and knowing the two of you and the work of the of, of, of the Andrea and Charles Bronfen philanthropies, I, was, I wouldn't have immediately suspected that those would have been the ones you would have selected. I wondered how you chose them, how you found them. Well, there were hundreds of people who were looked at. And uh, what we wanted to do, I think, is have a very diverse uh, group, males, females, from the east, from the west, from the south, uh, from the north, uh, and people who would either do something that became a national organization, like Michael Brown in, in uh, Boston with City Year, or somebody who did an amazing uh, thing, a woman in North Carolina who was wrongfully jailed because her ex-husband planted some cocaine in her refrigerator that she didn't realize uh, had happened. Uh, and uh, she found out when she was in prison that the one thing that women missed most was being able to communicate with their children. And so when she was released from jail, 
she started a program so that uh, women in jail and children at home could have the mother-child relationship, which is so very vital to people becoming reasonable human beings. What, in your opinion, are the commonalities among the 18 or the hundreds that you viewed? What is it within their DNA that, that kind of gives them that oomph? I think the first thing is, is the ability to um, take no as a starting point. One um, hears no a lot when one comes up with an idea. This is no different than, than business entrepreneurs. Um, but again, when the idea captures you and you know it's the right idea, um, you wind up prevailing over the various no's. Um, I think the second is these are people who really want to make the world a better place. Um, and whether it's the, the woman in North Carolina um, or Jay or, or any one of the 18 and the thousands of others, they, they, they've incorporated, I think, a combination of, of deep American values, uh, the notion of working toward a more perfect union, and deep Jewish values, although many of them not Jewish, that we have a responsibility to, um, to help heal the world. And that combination, um, whether it was their Jewish values or their Christian values or, uh, or their civic values, just drive them. I think there's also another uh, uh, part of, of their DNA that, that puts it all together. Uh, every step of the way, there's a wall that you're going to hit. Question is, can you either climb over the wall, under the wall, or through the wall? And how are you going to get to the next point? For instance, you start off with an idea, and you say, gee whiz, talk it over with your wife, your family, or your husband and family, and say, okay, I'm going to devote a certain amount of time to this because i got a day job. Now, what do we do? So you work out a game plan. And then you suddenly say, well, heck, I, I'm going to need some money to do this. How am I going to raise the money? So you cross that one. Then you get a little bit bigger, and it starts interfering with your day job. Well, i got to get somebody to help me with this. Can you get a volunteer to help? Okay, you get a volunteer to help. And it goes on and on, and finally you have to hire somebody. And now you're growing, and you have to have a bank account, and you have to do all these things. And every time you're hitting a wall. And the question is, how do you get through over or under that wall? And I think each one of the people who have uh, been uh, highlighted in this book, and as Jeff says, thousands of others, have had to do it and emerge at the end of the walls <laughs> at, the, at, at a very happy place. The ability to keep fighting through the walls is what kind of that core DNA piece. Uh, you, you list 14 kind of questions to ask yourself. As your, as your, if you to decide whether you're really a social entrepreneur, and I, I think they all sort of, they, they're 14 questions, but they're all a little bit the same. The are you ready to fight that? That's right. I think the, the overcoming of obstacles is is really the most common element that they that they share in their personalities. The use of case studies is just beautiful. Do you have a favorite uh, that or one that's speaking to you at the moment? As a father of twins, you never have a favorite. But um, <laughs> but is there one case study that speaks to you uh, deepest? We all, we all know people pretty well, and 
I guess that aside from the lady in North Carolina, who I have not met, uh, Jay Feinberg, who I do know very, very well, uh, there's also another woman who I know, uh, whose name is Deborah Kenny, and uh, she had worked with me at the Jerusalem Report selling advertising of all things. Now, I never knew it, but Deborah had a PhD in education, and here she was selling advertising. Her husband died at the age of 38 from leukemia and uh, left her with three kids. And I sort of mentored her. We'd have lunch every couple of months. How are you doing? How's he getting along? She stayed in the magazine business. And then one day she said, well, I found my calling. I said, what's that? She said, well, I got a grant from X Foundation and Y Foundation, and I'm going to start a charter school in Harlem. I said, you're going to do what? And anyway, she outlined a plan. She planned her work. She worked her plan. And today, she has won the uh, outstanding uh, charter school person and principal in New York uh, when Klein was the commissioner. Uh, when when uh, President Bush, George W. Bush, came to New York to look at charter schools, he went there. And she was certainly not a Republican. And uh, she just had a wonderful success. She now has a junior school, a middle school, and a high school. And her results have been extraordinary. So I just love her story, and I'm very fond of her personally. And she's just, again, come from nowhere with really no money and uh, has made a huge success, has now got a very influential board. An area that you focus on uh, throughout the book is financial development and fundraising. Uh, how has the, your foundation looked at the social entrepreneur, the startup? It's probably uh, the riskiest investment in the philanthropic world. Uh, someone who, who's doing that myself, I know that a lot of people worry, well, it's one man with a vision. What happens if that man or woman uh, loses or has to go back to their day job? We have, I think, two theories about it. The, the first theory is we believe that philanthropy – is investment, um, no different than financial investment. And the wisest portfolios are portfolios that are diverse, um, that you, you don't put all your money in bonds or you don't put all your money in stocks or all your money in real estate, but you have a, a, a balanced portfolio. Similarly, we, we argue, and we've said this in the art of giving, and we're saying this again here, that wise philanthropy is having a diversified portfolio. And just as in your investment portfolio, you might put some money into venture, knowing that eight out of nine of those ventures will fail, but the return on investment of the ninth more than makes up for the losses on the eight. Um, so we believe that you should be putting part of your portfolio uh, into higher risk capital um, for the philanthropic field. And so th that, that's a key element of, of an overall strategy. The second part of it is there are, sadly, charitable organizations that have been around for a very long time and that look very safe and that are inefficient and ineffective. And therefore, we argue, that's a greater risk than putting some money in somebody who's got a new way of doing something. And, uh, you know, I wish I had 
put my money with Steve Jobs at Apple um, and as a foundation person, am very happy with the investments we made um, on crazy ideas uh, like Birthright Israel. As I was reading this book, it was clear that you were writing it directly for me. (laughs) (laughs) I consider myself a social entrepreneur, and for the past 14 months, I've been working on this Jcast Network venture. Uh, Given that, what's your hope of what I or someone like me would do the moment they put down the book? Well, I think they probably look at themselves and say, well, is this for me or is this not for me? But I don't think they do anything until, as Jeff calls it, the aha moment arrives. We're not trying to get people who uh, have day jobs and are very happy in their family life, et cetera, et cetera, to suddenly say, oh, I've got to do something now. It's probably the other way around. Something happens that really grabs them, and then they say, gee, I'm going to go back to that book because there's stuff in there that will tell me whether I ought to go forward with this or not. So it's, yes, it's a handbook of how to do something, but we really urge and caution people about when to do it and how to do it. Earlier on, you said that this is a book for everyone. So it's everyone to read now and then come back to for those special folks when they have that aha moment, is that? You hit the nail on the head. But Charles is a a wise entrepreneur. It's for everyone to buy now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Reading it is even secondary. It's just buying. Read it, that's fine. (laughs) And for your children and grandchildren, cousins. Makes a a great Hanukkah gift. (laughs) (laughs) Or Christmas gift. Being an entrepreneur is one thing, but being a leader is another. Can you describe the transition and why it's important for a successful nonprofit enterprise? You know, I think the one of the interesting components is, is there's an inherent conflict between the skills you need to be a, an effective social entrepreneur and the skills you need to be an effective leader, especially in the not-for-profit world. So, you know, as Charles says, we've got to get over that wall, under that wall, or through that wall. That kind of person needs to realize that in the, in the social sphere, um, you can't just order people around, that you have to bring them around. And that in nonprofit ventures, it's very much about having lots of stakeholders. The stakeholders may be those volunteers, they may be a board, they may be funders, they may be staff. And so um, I, I think at one point in the book we, we talk about the, the leadership that's necessary is the leadership best described by Lao Tse. A leader is where the people hardly know he exists. Of a good leader, when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, the people will say we did this ourselves. Uh, the only thing, I, I think I have to disagree with Jeff a little bit. I've always found that uh, leaders are known. In fact, we were having a discussion this morning with a couple of uh, young men, uh, and their problem was they had very good ideas and they had uh, some terrific um, plans, but they didn't have a leader. Now, a leader is somebody who also is out in front of the troops saying, this is the way we go, and he is super salesman number one. And you can look through history, uh, whether it was a Churchill on the good side, a Roosevelt on the good side, or a Hitler on the terrible side, 
they all had one thing in common. They were leaders. Same in the business world. And the same, frankly, in the philanthropic world. <clears throat> and Jeff was a leader in the philanthropic world. Trying Still to, is. Trying to use the leadership of Lao Tse. You just, you just mentioned it in the last answer, uh, so I'll ask a deeper question. Are there any lessons for the, in this book that you think would be transferable or important for the for-profit sector? Your, your worlds are you know, wide and varied, and, and uh, while the philanthropic work that you're doing you know, is, a, is a core, you definitely have a great deal of experience on the other side. Uh, is there, are there lessons within this book that can be taken and, and used? Well, yeah, you know, it's really not terribly different. Uh, in our philanthropy, uh, we try to run uh, ACBP as though it were a business. Uh, and the same thing is if you're going to do philanthropy well, uh, you must think of it as, as a business. And there, therefore, inherently, in the walls to get through up or over uh, or under, uh, it's the same as in business. If you're doing a startup in a business, you got the same problems. How are you going to do it? Where, how, how do you take, as Jeff says, how do you get through the nose and use that as a beginning and not, not as an end? Here we're in total agreement um, because uh, virtually every lesson we talk about um, has relevance in the for-profit world as well the need to be transparent, the need to show value, to show what difference this makes. It's no different, you know, you, you, you think you can have the greatest product in the world. If you don't, there's no market for it. The need not to blame your market, to recognize that, that markets get it right. It's those who are trying to respond to markets who get it wrong. Um, the need to have a plan and to work the plan and to plan the work. All of these things are equally applicable to the for-profit sector as they are to the non-profit sector. I have so enjoyed this opportunity to sit with you and, 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 and learn from you, and I really uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I only hope that everyone goes out and buys and, and, re and, and reads this book um, and is as energized um, by, the, by their reading as I have been. Um, I thank you for writing it. I thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, and uh, thank you. Thank, thank you, Daron. It's been fun, Daron. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Charles Bronfman and Jeffrey Solomon. For more information about their latest book, The Art of Doing Good, Where Passion Meets Action, please visit artofdoinggood.com. For more information about the Andrea and Charles Bronfman philanthropies, please visit acbp.net. The book is widely available in better bookstores as well as online at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org.